Hello my friends and welcome back to another episode of Radical Radio Scotland. Now I do apologise about the unexpected delay in the episodes coming out, but thankfully we're back on track and we're ready to hear from some more activists in Scotland. Today we are joined by the fantastic Sarah Niederhartig. So, aye, you know the drill. Everybody, please put your hands together for Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on Radical Radio Scotland. No worries, thanks for having me. Uh, especially since it's a lovely day outside. Is it lovely where you are? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really nice here. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate it. So could you tell us a bit about how you got interested in environmental politics? Yeah, so I guess like I, I grew up in rural Ireland, so it was kind of quite close to nature, but like in Ireland, um, like agriculture is so intensified. So while I grew up quite, quite close to nature, um, I was also quite close to a lot of environmental degradation. Um, so that really spurred an interest in the like natural world and everything. Um, then I went to uni and I studied environmental science, but I think I grew a bit disillusioned with it because um, I saw my like lectures and everyone around me and they were doing such amazing research um in science but none of it was really being translated to policy and that's where I saw a huge issue um and around the same time I started to get involved in climate organizing and then later on in left-wing politics more generally um so yeah I was in uni around the kind of summer and autumn of 2019 which I view as being a really pivotal time in the climate movement it was around the time of the at the release of the really big IPCC report um the big 1.5 degrees in 10 years report and it was also a time for of growth for extinction rebellion and brightest of future so yeah that kind of setting really spurned an interest in environmental politics for me and then yeah I moved over to Edinburgh to start studying that in a bit more depth so yeah here I am <laughs> and you were saying earlier that um since you've been here you've been involved in a few climate projects could you tell us a bit about them uh, yeah, I haven't had the time to get as involved as I'd like, I think, but I've been involved in Climate Camp Scotland for a few months now. Um, and yeah, generally, like most of them have been here, I've just been kind of learning about like the environmental scene here and the political scene more generally. And I didn't have the time to get involved in planning around COP26, unfortunately, because I'd only been here for about a month at that stage. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to get a bit more involved. Yeah, that does... You were saying actually there, sorry, that you were involved with Climate Camp Scotland. Uh, I've reached out to them to try and get them on the podcast because their, their project looks cool, but I don't know too much about the project. Could you tell us a bit about what actually Climate Camp Scotland is? Yeah, so um, climate camps are like, they used to be quite a big thing a few years ago, especially around Europe, where basically a group of activists and organisers would gather in a certain site and perform direct action around a big center of fossil fuel infrastructure. And it, I think it was a big thing in Scotland about 10 years ago or so, or a bit more now. Um, and then it kind of fell off a little bit. And then Climate Camp Scotland was set up in 2019. Um, and But it was kind of halted a bit with COVID and everything. But last summer they had a big camp in Moss Martin around the plant in Moss Martin. Um, protesting there and yeah now we're organizing for something bigger this summer and we're still deciding on targets and everything but yeah definitely <laughs> um keep watching yeah see what happens yeah well that sounds well interesting i'd love to i'd love to delve more into the different options that they've came up with and stuff like that to hear <laughs> who basically these cl like climate criminals are in scotland yeah um definitely especially like moving over here like I didn't know a lot about like any of the big polluters in Scotland or anything so it's been kind of shocking to learn just the extent of it here yeah well you were saying that you were like you grew up in rural Ireland it's it's very similar here in rural Scotland the kind of issues I mean I think so anyway you were saying you grew up in rural Ireland and I feel like the issues in rural Scotland might be pretty similar, considering the, the yeah, just the geographical similarities seem to be apparent 
if you was was Ireland not supposed to be like extremely wooded, and it's just kind of it's barren. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really not wooded at all now. So um, like Irish forestry, like eight hundred years ago, was like I think eighty percent covered in forestry, wow. but that declined um to you know colonialism and everything, um and it hit a low point around the 1920s where I think only about less than two percent of the land was actually forested oh. now it's back up to around 11 percent but the vast majority of that is actually like non-native plantations which are for the timber industry basically where trees are grown for about 30 years clear felled all cut down and then you know produced into timber and sold um so is while that, the official it is sick of spruce, yeah. yeah. And so like official forestry figures in Ireland are about 11%, but only about 2% of that is actually like native woodland. Yeah. <laughs> so you can really consider Irish forestry to be a lot lower than the official figures because it's essentially, most of it is essentially plantation. Yeah, that is similar here as well. I think Scotland only had 2% of its native woodland, ancient woodland, that they call it here. Yeah. It's, it's really sad, yeah, once you think about everything that was lost, yeah. It is really sad. I feel like Scotland in particular is just viewed as this pure, beautiful country and, like, all of these scenic mountain ranges are touted as being world-class and so on, but the reality is they're, like, ecological deserts. There's nothing going on there. There's no biodiversity. It's yeah, completely. Like in, like, in environmental, like, science and psychology, there is this idea of, like, a shifting baseline syndrome where every generation has basically a lower expectation for what, like, nature should be. So we view these, like, agricultural pastures or, like you said, the Scottish, like, mountains being complete wastelands. We view that as being, like, nature, really, because that's what we expect nature to look like, whereas it's actually a lot different. It's a lot wilder than just a barren stretch of land. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. I want to move on to the IPCC report that's just been published because, it, I mean, I don't know if you have to read it all because you're, <laughs> you're studying environmental science and stuff like that, but there's no chance that I'm reading that many pages. So could you tell us a bit about it? Um, yeah, all 3,000 pages of it. No, um, <laughs> I haven't read all. I've read the summary and some chapters in a bit more depth. But um, yeah. basically the essence of it is that it's not too late to limit warming, warming to 1.5 degrees, but it will take an absolute Trojan effort and emissions have to peak pretty much immediately. Um, so this, there's three sections of the IPCC. The first focuses on physical science. The second released a few weeks ago focuses on adaptation. And this is the report that focuses on how we mitigate climate change. Um, and it really hammered home the fact that we have the solutions to actually limit warming to about 1.5 degrees, but the barrier is through political action. Um, the solutions just aren't being implemented in policy. Um, and what was really interesting about this report is that for the first time I had a whole chapter dedicated to the social barriers to mitigation. Um, and this was chapter five of the report. And it basically said that lifestyle changes on mass can have a significant effect, but it must be backed up by policy. So, and a lot of these policy options, they could have a really good impact on well-being as well. So, for example, in transport, like prioritizing alternative modes of, modes of transport and mobility are one of the main ways in reducing demand. And, you know, obviously it requires people to actually take public transport, but it requires requires a lot of policy to actually make that possible for people. And so this is through like cheap and what I believe should be free public transport and also making it more accessible and widespread. Um, it can also, you know, massively reduce heat, heating bills through stuff like mass retrofit schemes, which massively reduce household emissions, but also reduce heating bills, which is really critical right now, given the fuel, given the fuel price increases. Um, one thing which was also quite interesting about it was there was a lot of like degrowth narratives embedded in it. So it spoke about like adaptation of low demand energy practices in like work and consumption. Um, and it spoke about kind of changing our work practices a lot, which to me is kind of congruent with like a four day working week, which is a big degrowth um, selling point. Um, 
yeah and it also spoke a lot about switching development from gdp growth to focusing on like actual meet actually meeting people's basic needs and coming up with like a threat an economic threshold for well-being um because like wealthy households consume a lot more than what is needed for a decent living standard so it spoke a lot about yeah like limiting economic growth but meeting well-being which I found really interesting because this is something the IPCC would have traditionally like shied away from. And yeah, basically I said there's a lot of like social solutions that have multiple benefits in increasing well-being. Um, but yeah, the barrier to these being implemented is political will. And yeah, I think one of the main points of it is that like we have the solutions in terms of technology and you know science, but they're just not being implemented in policy, which in one way it's hopeful that we have the solutions there, but I also think it's something we should be very angry about that, you know, we have all these answers that can massively improve our future, but it's just like the one barrier is that governments aren't taking action to actually implement those. So yeah, that's the essence of it. And that's really what I took from it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, you are right though, to be like, we should be angry and although the the barrier is political will i just wanted to touch on on that a bit because it seems like throughout the whole from the start of humanity becoming aware about the climate crisis until now governments have known about climate change and the fact they've not acted on it is because they're not just like allowing it to happen, but they're like actively benefiting off of it. So I was just wondering what your opinion was on like, as as just trying to find the political will, what is going to make the difference, or is it kind of just changing who is the one that makes these decisions a better solution? Does that make sense? As in like changing who is in government or... Well, not just changing... You know, reducing... Changing the, the whole structure of govern, government. <clears throat> Maybe we don't yeah, actually, like, we, we don't require a government in this day and age to do stuff like that. Um, for me personally, like I'm, I, I believe in like a state and a government. I just think it needs to be completely uprooted and changed. Um, like one of the findings of the IPC report says that deep and econo deep economic and structural changes are required, and for me that. It kind of codes for like moving away from capitalism as a solution to like the climate crisis, basically, because the way like capitalist states tend to address the climate crisis is through market measures, which fundamentally are to reproduce capitalism rather than actually addressing the climate crisis. Um, and that's done through things like carbon markets and, you know, carbon taxes and offsetting and everything, which they're not really proven to be that effective but they just lock us into an economic system that's based off you know extracting as much as we can from less wealthy countries um and all of these solutions are really working within the capitalist system and just shouldering burdens everywhere and that's inherently what our government is like neoliberal governments are doing like they're inherently trying to protect capitalism rather than the environment but for me personally, um, yeah, my kind of theory of change is that the state is can be a powerful tool in, you know, mitigating climate change, but it can be it can be done through as a focal point for the redistribution of wealth. Um, yeah, that's where I stand on really. Yeah, you're right. I do agree that, you know, some states have had a really good impact on the environment, like Cuba, for example that they've got such a really strong environmental protection like uh, they've got a strong history of that so yeah I, like i think that we should just be kind of well for me personally it comes down to power imbalances and obviously one of the biggest power imbalances that we're talking about here is humanity over nature but that's obviously applicable to loads of other things as well we definitely do need to i, I don't think people understand how interconnected all of these issues are and how the struggle against climate change is also like you say 
a class struggle where we have to redistribute the wealth if we're going to be making a positive impact on climate change. So just moving on from that a bit, see the UK government has announced a new UK, uh, a new energy strategy. Have you looked into that? Yeah, I've looked into it. Um, I've read the report and everything. It's it's nowhere near as long as the IPCC report, but <laughs> which made it a bit easier. But yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of grim. as a report. It doesn't really it doesn't really address either the current like cost of living and fuel price crisis or the climate crisis. Um, it basically centers around making the UK less dependent on imports. But it really sets us on a path that soars past 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it's really incompatible with our current climate goals because it kind of relies a lot on increasing oil and gas production in the North Sea. Um, so it announces like a new round of oil and gas licensing in autumn. And it also introduces a body for fast tracking oil and gas applications in the North Sea. Um, That's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, um, okay. yeah, but yeah. This is it was released around the same time as the IPCC report and everything that the British Energy Security Strategy, which is the official name for it, it it's really incompatible with everything said by the IPCC. So, like on the IPCC report, it said that emissions have to peak before twenty twenty five, whereas the Energy Security Strategy it's announcing new oil and gas fields and most of those won't actually be working until past 2030. And then after that, oil and gas fields have a typical lifespan of about 20 to 40 years. So obviously it completely flies in the face of everything that was said by the IPCC, IPCC scientists. And when you're talking about that length of a timescale, it really doesn't address immediate, the immediate like impacts of the fuel price crisis because we're talking about a timescale that's decades from now, really. And also um, the idea of being less dependent on imports through increasing oil and gas production in the North Sea, that's that's really not going to reduce costs of fuel, crisis, of fuel prices either, because prices are set by a global market. So increasing production here isn't really going to reduce costs to people in the UK at all. So yeah, yeah, it's a very contradictory, <laughs> contradictory and strange report. Yeah, it, like it doesn't even, it just doesn't make sense that the the UK government would even try and hit out with things like that. Uh, what kind of, yeah, what I I just can't believe how they just are so open about it and somehow it doesn't get reported on. Obviously the media is like more than complicit. But I mean it was like not during COP26 that they were announcing the Campbell oil field and all that. Yeah, it's I mean <laughs> yeah it's kind of strange that they're announcing all these like new oil and gas fields around the time of big reports that really contradict everything they're saying. Um, it's just really strange to me. <laughs> But also, like one, I don't know, maybe one good point in the energy security strategy is that it kind of sidelines fracking a lot. Like it orders a review of science around fracking to see whether it's safe or not. Um, but it doesn't explicitly say that we're going to introduce it, um, which is one good point. And the review of science has to prove that fracking is safe and doesn't have an impact on local communities, um, which fracking pretty much does so maybe that's one good point you can take from the energy security strategy is that yeah it it yeah it's not really very pro-fracking which that is good that is good because fracking is obviously a massive danger that that was the thing as well the thing that never that I never understood about fracking it's also applicable to the north sea is this like you said they say it's going to Reducer. I'm sorry, I think I've lost connection. If you can still hear me. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Sorry, I just lost you there, I think. That's okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Sorry, I just missed your last point. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I was just saying, like like you said, the the, the thing about fr what, this, what I never understood about fracking was what the UK government are saying about the North Sea oil production is just now. 
as like you were saying, they said that it would reduce our dependency on foreign imports. But that's just not the case. It's like none of these companies that are extracting oil are nationalised. None of them are in are owned by the UK government. So you're not protecting your own. Like that oil belongs to that government that's then exporting it to an international market. Exactly. I mean, like over the past year, Shell made profits of something around 14 billion, whereas obviously households in the UK now are facing massive increases in in gas prices. I just kind of wanted to add to that as well. Like, like you said, Shell reported these record profits, but apparently it's a, it's a fuel crisis. There's a, there's a big crisis going on, but it's obviously not that. It's just greed. Like all of these companies across various industries are reporting record profits yeah exactly and i mean one of the biggest proponents for fracking in the uk is jim ratcliffe who owns Ineos, and he's like one of the wealthiest people in the uk he's moved to monaco to avoid paying something like four billion in taxes and now he's promoting fracking to address the cost of living crisis and fuel poverty in the uk and that extraction is going to the money generated from that extraction is going to go directly to the hands of corporations, to massive fossil fuel corporations, not, not going, and it's not going to lower the bills of anyone in the UK. So it's really disgusting that, you know, companies like Shell, like Ineos are using narratives that really, they're using something that has such a terrible effect on so many people to justify their, their need to extract oil and to increase their own profits so yeah that's it's really really disgusting uh, disgusting is one way to put it is <laughs> i honestly don't know how they get away with it but, i mean they don't always get away with it i remember reading something about what happened between shell and and nigeria in the 90s man that was horrible but they ended up having to pay a, a massive amount of money but i do want to talk about it it's a horrible <laughs> but you were saying that it is good that the UK energy report didn't really mention fracking. It kind of just sidelined it and said that they want an investigation of science into it, whatever that means. Um, what do you think the next steps are in regards to fracking in the UK? Do you, do you, do you not think it's even a possibility that the UK government will try and approve it? Um. Well, I know Jim Ratcliffe of Enios, he's really pushing to loosen restrictions around fracking. And I think he has a test site in Nottinghamshire. Um, but I think it's quite well known the impact that fracking has on local communities, like it results in so much water and air contamination. Um, and on a wider scale, there's so many methane leakages linked to fracking, um, which obviously has a huge impact on greenhouse gas emissions. But yeah, I, I really don't know um, what way fracking is going to go in the UK. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, I think one thing that's also important to note is that while fracking obviously isn't a thing in the UK right now, Scotland still supports fracking through the importation of fracking to Ineos in Grangemouth. Um, and that comes from Pennsylvania and the US, where you know local communities ha have been so strongly affected by fracking. Um, and I think that's something that's important to note too around fracking discourses that we're not doing it right here, but we're still supporting it. And I think that's something um, anti-fracking campaigners in the UK and you know environmental activists more generally um, need to focus on a bit because like yeah, it's such a global thing, and and fracking is something that has such a huge impact on local communities. And yeah, I think it's important to note that while we stand against fracking here, it is quite hypocritical too to support it through importing fracked gas yeah no you're definitely right you're definitely right that was actually something that people did campaign against but it obviously just got lost in the noise because you never hear about that anymore which is mad because like you say it is such a global thing and if we don't really take a stand against that then it can it's just essentially nimbyism isn't it just not in my backyard like, yeah, definitely. Like you can't put can't put your big drills up here, but we'll happily use it whilst you've done it elsewhere. That yeah, is something I mean, that needs to be addressed. 
Yeah, and it was a thing in Ireland as well, where we banned fracking in Ireland a few years ago, but there's still plans to import fracked gas from the US, from Appalachia, which is a really, an area that's so strongly impacted by fracking. Um, so yeah, that's, it's something that's quite hypocritical, but it's, yeah, like you said, it's complete nimbyism. Um, and it's the idea that like, if you can't physically see the impacts of fracking in a country, like you're less likely to be aware of how bad it can be. Yeah. I think learning about what fracking had done to Pennsylvania was what was like the first kind of experience that I had with fracking. I remember reading about that, like just after the Scottish independence referendum in 2014 and just getting interested in that. And that's how uh, me and my pals, we ended up starting up the uh, Don't Frack the Briggs. Like I'm a mm -hmm. localised anti-fracking group. That was some, that was so mad. That's why I was saying earlier, I don't know if it actually came through, but I was saying that Aeneas are really unprofessional because not only are they like union busting and just really daft that way, but in my experience, at least when we had that loads of localised campaigns and different towns and villages across the central belt where they wanted to frack, Aeneas like completely crumbled gave them the runaround it was I, I couldn't believe how how easy it was to get under their skin so for example we had a public meeting and we had like it was fully packed over like 350 people there there's people standing down the side and all the seats were taken stuff like that and we had a panel of like different politicians and anti-fracking campaigners and then we invited along the NS like someone from NS to give their side. And obviously everyone there was against fracking. We'd already built like built up this kind of foundational opposition to it. And the guy just got slaughtered in that meeting from the general <laughs> public. Like we didn't even have to do anything. But after that, they thought that's a good idea having public meetings. So they announced a tour of all the public, eh, sorry, all the towns that they'd been and had the same thing happen to. And for some reason, they put all the tickets online. So we would just like book out all the tickets. So like nobody could go. And I was just, I was so struck with how easy it was to wind up this massive, massive company. They've got like over a billion pound in revenue or something. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's wild. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if, if that's the people, if that's the like, if that's what, the people who are ruining the environment are doing then surely we can outsmart them and stop them <laughs> from doing this <laughs> exactly here's hoping anyway um yeah i know like one of the big quotes from jim ratcliffe recently was that he wants to emulate a fracking boom in the uk like they just had in the us which <laughs> it's it's a terrible narrative to have because i mean randolph last year they had their their fracking boom over the past 10 years or so and it had terrible impacts on the local community. Like it completely polluted water and air. I think there was about 10,000 deaths announced that were linked to fracking. And as well as that, the main narrative that Ineos are using to promote fracking is that it could be like a really good source of jobs. Whereas in Appalachia communities that had fracking in their area, they didn't really report any increase in jobs at all. So it's interesting that a company like that with so much obviously access to like resources and research would come out with statements like that that are just totally nonsensical um yeah, yeah it's a bit a bit mad <laughs> well that was what like at that public meeting that we had their guy gave his presentation and then after him was patrick harvey of the scottish green party who was, was speaking after them and when he stood up like the whole this is how you knew everyone was anti-fracking because he got like a standing ovation from everybody there. And he was like, I've, I've not even said a word yet. So he's <laughs> got like this massive support. But he was saying in that Ineos presentation that they gave to our town, they said that they had great experience in the technology and they had like all of this proof of record of how safe it's been and how safe they've operated it. But also they said that it was a new technology and new science so that they like by doing it we would be at the front of it 
And after that presentation, Patrick Harvey went and he was like, you can't have a long-standing history of performing it safely and it being new. Like you have to, <laughs> you have to choose one. I feel like they've always had hypocritical and daft statements like that. I mean, I don't know how they actually get away with it, considering how daft they are. <laughs> but that meeting, yeah, they, they just got slaughtered. But they, I mean, even the, the stuff as well with like Ennis trying to union bust. Yeah, that was that was crazy. <laughs> the like whole shutting down the plant or threatening to shut down the plant at least once workers tried to unionize. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like you're just trying to make yourself out to be the bad guy, really. It's I don't even know what they're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. So you were saying earlier that you're from rural Ireland. This was something that I wanted to know about. So how responsible would you say is British colonialism for the kind of degradation of Ireland's environment? Yeah, so obviously since colonialism, um, various governments in Ireland have been really um, really complicit in the degradation of Ireland's environment. Um, but a lot of the kind of long-lasting effects of colonialism are still apparent in Irish with Irish biodiversity. So yeah, like I was saying earlier, one of the primary examples of that is through Irish forestry, where Ireland was a really richly forested country, but with colonialism, a lot of that was clear-felled and used in British manufacturing and construction. There's, there's, there's stories of um, timber from Limerick in Ireland being used to construct Westminster Abbey. And it was used mm -hmm. a lot in industries that were instrumental to helping to create British wealth. Um, and yeah, that's had a really long lasting effect in Irish policy. And even now in say in forestry policy, one of the primary narratives of Irish forestry at the moment, it's kind of geared towards profit. And there still is that very colonialist um, capitalist notion of nature being a commodity. And I think that's something that's really, it's apparent in like all kind of colonized countries that nature is viewed as something that can be extracted for the purposes of wealth creation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think obviously colonialism environment and environmental 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 degradations are, are are really interlinked and they're both kind of rooted in the idea that both people and the environment are kind of something that can be taken over that can be commodified um yeah and even like in ireland the legacies of that are still very apparent um just through through capitalism being the like one of the main legacies of colonialism um, and even today, just talking about colonial, colonialism more broadly, um, like a lot of fossil fuel project are, projects are based in indigenous land, particularly in like Canada and in Australia. And yeah, I think as such, like environmental movements really need to be explicitly anti-colonialism in their narratives and in everything they do. And we need to like integrate calls for reparations into our demands and ensure that like, you know, solutions to the climate climate crisis aren't aren't colonialist, like like what happened in the U.S. Like during the formation of the national parks and everything, um, they have quite a colonial legacy. So they're primarily created for the preservation of nature, but from a very aesthetic point of view. So was I think Ireland was part of the Celtic rainforest? Is that right? Um. So natively, we have what's called like a temperate Atlantic rainforest, yeah. which there's like only like very few places like that that are restored to that or that are still intact. Um, but they're they're actually so beautiful, um, and but they're so rare to see. Like even I've only seen like photos of those in recent years because, like usually in Ireland, what a forest is is like plantations of sicka spruce, and it's really like not related yeah. to like actual nature at all and like I remember when I was studying in environmental science like we used to do biodiversity services surveys of different areas of forestry and different types of forestry and when you're studying like a sicker spruce plantation like you have to record all the species in the area and like with a native forest you have you have like saplings of different trees coming through you have you know different levels of growth you have ferns um you know different like smaller low-lying plants but like in a six yeah. spruce plantation you have like 
Sitka spruce, bare ground, and maybe a bit of moss if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the actual disparity between like what what's kind of recorded as forestry in, in official records in Ireland and like what is actually like nature and what is um, like proper biodiverse woodland, it's very different. Yeah, it's definitely it's similar in Scotland as well. Like it's just plantations everywhere and it's just a complete monoculture. Like nothing actually lives there. Yeah, completely. Even like, I don't know about Scotland, but in Ireland, um, the emergence of sickest spruce plantations has actually been linked to like the decline of a lot of bird species and the extinction of several of them. So wow. it's interesting that something like forestry, which you automatically assume is good for the environment, can actually have a devastating effect if it's done wrong. Yeah, I think how we tell apart in Scotland, at least that what was part of that rainforest, that uh, North Atlantic rainforest, is just by identifying it as rainforest, you can pure tell the difference. I mean, you've got a lot of Loch Lomond. See, if you go in the islands of Loch Lomond, that is just basically what this whole part of Scotland would have been like, on the west coast at least. And I'm assuming what Ireland would have been like. And there's different little enclaves of Scotland's rainforest, but it's so fragmented that it's... I don't see how it comes back. Yeah, I think... Like one of the main ways of bringing it back, it's not to just like plant a forest somewhere where there was never really a forest, it's just to expand and link what's called biodiversity corridors. So like what you were saying about the fragments of different areas of forestry, it's like you basically allow those, allow those fragments to link together and expand rather than just creating a new forest, which will probably be quite unnatural for the area. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Like, you just have to... That's one of the problems that... That's one of the, sorry, the, the kind of line of thinking that has caused these problems is that we have all the answers and we know what's best for nature when really we don't really know that much about how an entire ecosystem functions to where we could perform it to the same level as just leaving the land to do what it does best. Yeah, completely. Like there's some really cool restoration projects in Ireland where, where the people involved in them, they didn't really do a lot themselves, as in they didn't go and like plant trees or anything in the area. They just kind of fenced off an area near woodland and just like let the woodland naturally expand. And that's had really good results. And yeah, I think, yeah, like what you were saying about the idea that we can go and create nature because we know what nature is, it's it's not really true. You just kind of have to let it be and let nature grow and take its own course and stop viewing it as something that we can create as humans. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the projects that I'm involved with just now. We only set it up last year, but at the north of Glasgow, there's a big range of hills called the Campsie Fells. And like if most of, most of Glasgow, wherever you are, you can see them. Well, a lot of Glasgow, you can see them. And I live just near the base of these hills. And just like seeing them all the time, I remember just thinking, how good would it be if just that was a left, that like those whole, that whole range of hills was just left to, to rewild itself. And then we just got a campaign going. That's what we're trying to do just now, because the, like you were saying, wildlife corridors and like ecological corridors they're really important to different species and where the hills are located geographically it's not too far from Loch Lomond at all so if they were allowed to wild there could be an argument of like joining them up as well and that would also help kind of the environment snowball back into the the way that it should be and one of the ways that we are seeing that I don't know if you've ever paid in, any interest to this but they recently reintroduced beavers into Scotland and they're just like making their way through the central belt of Scotland from like up Perth above Edinburgh. And they're, they're almost at Loch Lomond, so they're almost back in Scotland's rainforest. So it would be cool to see how a species like that, that is actually skilled way better than humans at generating little environments and habitats, will do when they actually reach remnants of the like 
the North Atlantic rainforest. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, I always find it kind of wild that, like, you have to physically, like, reintroduce an animal that, like, would be here natively, that, like, we as humans have done so much to completely eradicate nature that we've just wiped out an entire species that should be found here. So it's really cool to see, yeah, projects like that where, like, beavers are just, like, slowly making their way across Scotland. It's really cool to see, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I like, I was going to make a wee documentary about it because they had... They'd reintroduced them, but they were also allowing farmers to shoot them or something like that. It was like something mental, like you could get a license to kill a beaver. Like, what is the actual point in reintroducing them if that's what you're going to do? But I think they I think they just got rid of that practice. And now they're. it's cool to see like the maps of beavers have been spotted here, beavers have been spotted here, and then like suspected beaver rage. Because I feel like for a lot of time it was just, it was like birds that were getting reintroduced to Scotland, which is obviously good. It's great to see the eagles, the sea eagles and stuff like that get reintroduced. But at the same time, you want to see like, not just the coastline being affected, you want to see all of the kind of the land environment and see how that changes. But yeah, definitely. Like, like you were saying as well, a lot of this is just putting up a big fence to keep out deer. I don't know how similar it is in Ireland, but in Scotland, like the deer population has exploded mental. It's like the biggest threat to all of these enclaves of woodland. Yeah, it's similar in Ireland um, because like obviously we used to have wolves in Ireland, but yeah, again, with colonialism, they were kind of like wiped out um, and they used to naturally limit the deer numbers, but like now we don't have wolves in Ireland, which it's a contentious topic in in like envir Irish environmental politics. It's the introduction the reintroduction of wolves, but yeah, we have that similar problem of deer because of that. Or yeah, populations just grow like crazy, and especially in like the Wicklow area around Dublin, it's very like mountainous. There's a lot of um, a lot of nature reserves there, um, but they're yeah again really highly threatened by deer populations. Yeah, it's the same here in Scotland. It's so contentious to say that you support wolves being introduced. <laughs> I think everyone wants to do that, though, because of that video that was made ages ago. Did you did you ever see that on YouTube? No. It was just like how how wolves change rivers or something. Oh, it's in constant. Yellowstone in the US. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. It's yeah. really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And I would love to see something like that happen here. But, I mean, like you say, it's so contentious to say that you support wolves being introduced. <laughs> but, again, the impact that they have on the environment is mental. And one of the things, like, I've not really picked up that project as much as I should this year. Like, I done loads on it last year. And then I just kind of got burnt out with it. But at the same time, the only reason that I've not kind of picked up again is because that whole time my idea of how we interact with land like that is has been like growing and, and brewing in my mind. So like like we were saying, obviously nature knows best and as long if we like hold our hands up and just let nature do what it does, it's going to regenerate. But at the same time, if we just let that happen, but we don't actually alter how we perceive society or how we, how we interact with it, I don't really know how long that will help. I feel like this, like rewilding and stuff like that should also be a very human-led project in terms of relearning how to interact with our environment again. Like, see saying that all humans have a natural tendency to destroy the environment or whatever is just so untrue because when you take indigenous groups they've managed to live in harmony with the environment for like thousands of years so i think rewilding isn't just letting like taking a back seat and letting nature do all the work that's obviously a massive part of it but i feel like we need to incorporate trying to yeah, just rebalancing how we live with nature. Yeah, but on like how we interact with nature, like the kind of historic um, way of preserving nature was to fence it off 
completely and like really not let any humans interact with the nature in that fenced off area mm-hmm. and this is still a thing in like you know national parks in certain areas of Africa um, where kind of people who've lived there for generations who've lived totally like in harmony with the land um, have been kind of thrown off off their like ancestral lands and you know not really allowed to yeah communities who have been like living on a certain area of land and like practicing like practices that have been totally like in harmony with nature they're not really allowed to do that anymore and yeah it comes from quite a problematic idea that humans and nature are inherently like humans are inherently damaging to nature which obviously isn't the case it's just the practices that we've built up here in like Europe and the kind of global north um like that's where the issue lies it's not a human nature thing at all yeah honestly frustrates me so much when people make that argument oh it's just human nature to to destroy all these things because it's just so contrary to the evidence out there of like it's obviously systemic it's it's like it's a really western thing yeah totally i think we're like very much products of like the society we grew up in and if we were growing up if we grew up in a society that was a lot more in tune with nature and that valued nature not as just a commodity but as the thing that's allowed to exist in and of itself then we wouldn't really have that idea that humans are like inherently damaging to nature um yeah and I think that's something I'd love to see a lot more work done in the future is like how we as humans conceptualize the environment and how we relate to it and how that can be improved to you know, not only improve our own, like, understanding of what nature is, but to improve the actual, like, physical, natural world. Yeah. I think as well, that kind of comes from our society, in the West at least, views us as separate from nature, instead of, like, being a part of it, where it's something that we come from, like, yeah. Seems like people just forget that we are animals that can just communicate <laughs> really, really well. And somehow the conditions that gave us that gave rise to us just don't matter. Exactly. Um yeah, like like I'm quite into like evolution just like as a topic, because obviously it's it explains so much about like the world around us today. And yeah, everything that made humans like this more like quote-unquote advanced society it was just like purely chance like once you get into like the actual genetic aspect of evolution and yeah the idea that we're inherently like above nature that we're better than any other like animal species just because yeah like like you said we communicate better it's it's really damaging and it's led to a lot of problematic interactions with nature and with the natural world yeah have you ever had a chance to, wait, I think actually you might have said this already, but did you ever have a chance to visit any of the rainforest that's left in Ireland? Um, I visited a few, but not as much as I'd like to. Um, yeah, again, they are quite different, difficult to like access. And yeah, you, they tend to be quite like, sorry. I was going to say, do you have the right to roam in Ireland? I'm not actually sure. I don't think it is to the same extent as it is in Scotland, but I could be wrong on that. I'm not actually sure. Yeah. Sorry I cut you off there. I was just wondering, like, so since Scotland, you can just go there and camp and spend time there. And Yeah, I think in Ireland you have to ask for permission or something. Um, but again, I'm not 100% clear on that. Yeah. That's mad. That's mad. But I think that wraps up everything that I wanted to ask you. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or mention? Um, I don't I don't really think so. It's just, yeah, you kind of mentioned earlier about the kind of differences and similarities between like Scottish and Irish like left-wing politics and environmentalism in general, if you'd like to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I guess like one thing I've kind of seen a bit of a similarity like um like in Ireland this was happening a lot before COVID especially 
um, and I've kind of seen it in the UK with COP where environmental groups are kind of interacting a lot more with like other like other movements and other organizations and like you could see this in Scotland around COP26 when you know like Fridays for Future and Climate Strikers they supported the um the bin the refuse refuge workers strike strikes mm-hmm. um and then in return those like workers went and supported a COP26 and this was the thing in Ireland as well because we were fighting against one certain trade deal which would have would have had really bad impacts across like all sectors in Ireland so like it kind of allowed us to reach out to like housing groups and um labor labor organizations to kind of fight against this one common thing so that's something I've I've kind of noticed is a similar similarity like between both Ireland and Scotland and it's something I'd love to see grow a lot more in the future yeah no Um, me too definitely like you are right those groups they they did really interact well during COP26 I know that Living Rent as well was supporting the cleansing workers so you had like a tenants union Fridays like Fridays for Future all of these environmental groups and the cleansing workers. Yeah, it was very interesting to see these groups come together during COP26 and support each other because that is the way it should be. It's the same struggle. It's the same, it's a common enemy. So it's all the same people that are driving the inequality, the power inequality that each of them face. Yeah, completely. And I think especially like, in both like Ireland and Scotland we have the like a similar thing of um like in Scotland fighting for an independent Scotland and in Ireland fighting for United Ireland and there's a common thing that like we really don't want you know a independent Scotland or United Ireland under like neoliberalism and we don't want to just like replicate the same society we have today but just like under a different state system um and I think those connections are really important in fighting for that in shaping like what could be a new society and yeah, I think that's something I think is really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I don't know what you mean. That's a neoliberal Scotland is not what we want. It's essentially what we have just now <laughs> under the SNP, but like an independent one, it would just be, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, if we want to change, like to, you know, have a United Ireland, to have an independent Scotland, we want to build a better state, not just the same. Not not just what we have right now. Yeah, not just replicating what we have, but on a on a mini version. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that wraps up everything. Is there okay, anything you perfect. wanted to shout out? Where can people find you? Um, <laughs> for me personally, like I'm on Twitter mainly. That's where I rant about everything. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the main one for me. And yeah, I guess obviously like keep an eye on like Climate Camp Scotland. We're gonna have some really exciting stuff coming up. And yeah, that's Shanae really, as we say in Ireland, that's it. Yeah. Buzzing. Buzzing. I can't wait to find out what Climate Camp Scotland are up to. Seems like a <laughs> class organization. Right, anyway, thank you so much for having me here. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sarah.